0: My Fame Explained podcast episode eight, Randy Bresnick.
1: I could look out the front window and now see the curvature of the Earth. That's what was, you know, blew me away at first.
0: Welcome to the My Fame Explained podcast, a podcast with the people you know and the personal stories behind their fame. I'm your host, Larry Gilbert. On May 30th, NASA astronauts Bob Banken and Doug Early lifted off at 3.22pm on SpaceX's Falcon 9 rocket from Kennedy Space Center in Florida. It got me thinking about space exploration and what the next few years hold for it. I wanted to know what it was like for those astronauts to be in the rocket that day as they were leaving Earth, what it feels like to be weightless, and to look back at planet Earth and all of its beauty. And so I reached out to NASA because I wanted to sit down with Randy Bresnik an astronaut whose life and career I found fascinating after I saw an interview with him on that day on a cable news network. Randy, or comrade as he is known, was selected as an astronaut in 2004. He was commissioned as a second lieutenant in the U.S. Marine Corps in May 1989. During his military career, he became an fa 18 test pilot where he eventually deployed to Kuwait to fly combat missions in support of Operation Iraqi Freedom. A veteran of STS-129, Randy most recently served as the commander of the International Space Station for Expedition 53 and flight engineer for Expedition 52. So here's astronaut Randy Bresnik and his NASA fame explained. You grew up in Santa Monica, California. Um, and so what were those years like in junior high, high school, uh, eventually joining the military and then becoming an astronaut, something you always wanted to do?
1: Yeah, I, I have a son who just finished middle school and uh, is about to enter high school, and so it's been interesting talking to him and and seeing how vastly different you know his experiences were from mine. Um, he's uh, he's fourteen years a fourteen and a half years old, and he's six foot five. I was quite the opposite, you know. When I was in in middle school, I was quite the uh, the late bloomer. So I was the really small kid, and uh, certainly, uh, you know, literally the 98 pound, you know, weakling going into high school, um, and so um it was you know i was active in sports you know uh, i i enjoyed figuring out how things worked i took you know even you know in high school took russian night class russian language night class at the local community college San Marco college just because i was i was interested in language and then you know what what they're offering to my high school they, they didn't have that uh i played percussion all through you know middle school and high school and in college and so, you know, a variety of interests and skills, but I also worked. I mean, I, I had a job ever since I was 13 years old. Um, and so I've, you know, been working and studying and, you know, my whole life and, and all of that work in, you know, Santa Monica growing up there was, you know, what led me to the point where I could, you know, figure I wanted to go to college. You know, I had a dream of flying and that was always an interest of mine. But, you know, I came from a, I should say probably a lower middle-class family and, of money for me to go to college, and but I applied for you know scholarships and you know Marine Corps saw fit to pick me up for a four-year scholarship, and that allowed me to uh, go off and attend the Citadel. And because I selected the Citadel in, in, in Charleston, South Carolina, because it was a military college, I figured it would prepare me for. Um, what I was going into and, and I wanted to fly and I wanted to be able to, you know, go do that. And so that's why I selected it over, you know, USC or UCLA or something closer to home, um, you know, as my opportunities were being from Southern California.
0: Okay. Um, and then you graduated high school and you would eventually go on, go into the military where you would go into more schooling and then eventually become an fa 18 test pilot uh, where you were deployed to Kuwait and fought in some uh, combat missions in support of uh, operation iraqi freedom so talk about that period of your life and what that was like uh, you know being in in school and then in the military and
1: you know what i what i loved about the uh, the marine corps is, is that we all when i graduated and got commissioned became a second lieutenant you know upon the day i graduated from the citadel you know we go to a, a school called the basic school and all marine officers go there just like all marine enlisted go through boot camp and we all have these shared experiences and through that know basic school we the artillery the industry officers the administrative officers the legal officers and the pilots we all go through the same basic six months of marine corps training and then uh, you know went off to flight school and and got became a pilot got my earned my wings after going to flight school in florida and texas and then in my fleet time uh flying f-18s as an operational pilot you know was stationed in southern california in hawaii and then back to Southern California. And in between that, I did these deployments called Westpacs, where we deployed the squadron to Japan for six months um, for training and also as a deterrent for North Korea. Uh, and so ended up doing uh, two of those six month deployments, and then one year where we actually moved the squadron to Iwakuni, Japan and lived there as well. So I ended up with you know, two years living in Japan, which was amazing as a young person to be able to go live in another country and experience that, rather than just travel to it and visit. Uh, as well as, you know, being able to fly uh, around Japan and in our detached from deployments to Guam and Australia um, and South Korea. Uh, it's just an amazing opportunity to see the world outside of, of the U.S. and see, you know, how similar people are, you know, around the world, just, you know, speaking different languages. Um, and then, you know, the fortunate opportunity uh, to be able to go and to become a test pilot and go to test pilot school in Patuxent River, Maryland. And and learn how you know this whole aerodynamics thing works, and how you test things, and how you bring new airplanes and capabilities of airplanes to to flight and to the operators who need them. Um, a very very enjoyable tour. Got a chance to be an instructor at the Naval Test Pilot School for a year. Um, they say I was an instructor. I think I was just back there for remedial training. Um, but you know that's a, a discussion for another time. Yeah. Um, and, and then uh, and then left the, the test pilot to go back to the operational community. And uh was part of the Marine Aircraft Group 11 out of uh, Miramar, uh, California, Mir- Miramar Marine Corps Air Station, when when uh, Operation Iraqi Freedom uh, kicked off in in 2003. We we went over there at the end of 2002. We're there for the end of um, Operation Southern Watch, and then and then we're there for the the kickoff of the uh, um, OIF as as we call it, uh, and we're there through. The cessation of the, the major hostilities in May, um, and so that was uh, you know taking it full circle from you know being spending the majority of my overseas time in, in the Far East to then end up in the in the Middle East um, for that particular um, for that particular engagement.
0: Okay, um, and at this point in your life, you already have a, a distinguished military career. Um, but then you were selected for the astronaut program in two thousand four. What went through your mind the moment that you found out that you were selected for the program? <laughs> uh, I mean, it must have been life changing. A lot. <laughs> I was a wondering. That. I mean,
1: it, it was you know, I, it was actually uh, I was in the desert. You know, we were based out of Al Jabra Kuwait, uh, for Operation Iraqi Freedom. And while we were there, applications. You know the the message came out and applications were submitted for you know consideration for the astronaut program. And so here I am, you know, we're in a tan flight suit, flying combat missions and, you know, by night, you know, type up my application and getting it submitted. Um, you know, never thinking that it was a, a realistic possibility. I mean it just you know I, I had always wanted to fly as a kid but and i was enamored i, I was just fascinating what we did with our space program i built models of spacecraft and and uh you know just always watched with with you know awe what what we pulled off you know with apollo skylab and then certainly you know shuttle uh, during the majority of my my time yeah um but to be able to actually be considered to be qualified to apply, I was like, wow, you know, and, and so you're applying with all these people and I knew some of the other test pilots and all that and I think, Well, wow, I'm just nowhere folks, but then the process starts and, you know, I end up, uh, you know, there are a couple of points of inflection on on the process where they, they usually have, um, or they, at that time, they had six weeks of 20 people that they interviewed. So they interview 120 people to make a selection. Well, evidently our year, they decided that, hey, we had everybody we needed out of the first five selection groups or, or interview groups, and I had an interview. So, okay, they, hey, I got to apply, and, and that was it. Well, it turns out a few weeks later, they found out that some of the folks that they wanted for the educator astronaut program were not medically qualified. And so they ended up having a late sixth group to interview. And they had, you know, it was like 16 educator astronaut you know possibilities, and there were two of us test pilots in that group. And so here I am interviewing, knowing that they already had the pilots they needed. And so it wasn't like I was, you know, just a, a in a mix in a fair playing field. I had to unseat somebody that was already they had, you know, you know, chosen. Yeah. Um, and it, it, you know, amazingly enough, the three of us that interviewed, myself and two of the educators in that sixth group, ended up being selected as part of our class of of eleven. Um, and so once you do the interviews, you then go through a process of where they check your references and you do a security background check and things like that. And, and, and typically if you're becoming a a finalist or, or or getting whittled down from that 120 down to the ones that are really, you'll get in, you know, you know, um, word from your, uh, references or people that are, you know, doing the background check. Well, you you'll know that if they're doing a background check, you're still in the hunt. I didn't have any of that. And so, you know, you know, Easter timeframe that year, two thousand four. You know, my wife and I were driving back from my parents' house in Santa Monica to, back down to where we lived in San Diego. Say, like, hey, you know, it, it was I got interviewed. I'm I'm honored that they even want to talk to me. You know, it, it's you know the odds are slim and none. So hey, no worries. You know, life goes on. I'm the operations officer of a fighter squadron, and you know, life life was great. Um, well, when I got the call from the chief of the astronaut office, you know, to join the class, there was nobody, I don't think in the history of NASA that's been more surprised than me because everybody, you know, had some idea that we were still in the hunt and I had, you know, none. And so, you know, very you know, amazed and excited and literally a half an hour after the chief, of the astronaut office called me and asked, I get a phone call from the uh, Naval investigative service saying, Hey, I'm really sorry. I'm about two months behind on my background checks. Can I talk to you about an interview for your background check? <laughs> so I had yeah. to laugh. You know, that, uh, I guess they figured since I was the operations officer and test pilot in the Marine Corps, and I already had, you know, high security clearances, they probably didn't need to rush mine through. And I probably wouldn't you know, pass the NASA one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so just, you know, a few points to where, you know, life, you never know what life's going to give you. Nothing's for sure. Right. And even the processes and things you can expect don't always happen. So it's, you know, never give up, you know, never and, and be happy with what you're doing. Because, you know, if, if a dream or a path that you think, you know, you need to take or want to take, may not be the right one for you and, you know, you'll end up where you're supposed to be. Just keep the faith.
0: Yeah, good advice. Let's talk about STS-129, the mission to the International Space Station aboard Space Shuttle Atlantis in November of 2009. That was your first time in space. And every time I watch a launch, I always think, you know, what are the astronauts thinking at this moment, 10 seconds before liftoff? And are you scared, nervous, excited? um, Or are you just so busy that you don't have time to really reflect on it at that moment? So kind of walk us through that whole whole process of, you know, right before launch and, and then the journey up into space.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's about 10 months to uh, a year before a flight that you get assigned for training. It's pretty intensive because for space shuttle missions, you have the whole thing mapped out. The flight starts at launch and you have your mission lapse time. And it is a, we say, you know, always call it a sprint. You know, the whole thing's mapped out precisely, unlike a space station mission. And so we, you know, we train for that mission. Um, about uh, three months into the training, though, um, my wife and I found out that uh, she was pregnant yeah and that was uh you know something that was not supposed to be medically possible and so uh, our focus kind of changed <laughs> and so I can't um, and you know but the the mission didn't and so uh originally you know, as we went through training uh a guy was supposed to be delivered you know supposed to be born after we got back from the mission and then uh you know uh, over the summer the doc said hey uh, we actually need to you know, deliver a little early um, and so we said, okay, that's fine. It's still after the mission. And then there was a snafu at Kennedy Space Center, and and we our mission ended up sliding um, right over to the point where the daughter was supposed to be delivered. So by the time we got ready to launch, you know, I was fully prepared. Our crew was just rock solid, and everybody could you know read each other's minds practically. And so we you know gets um, stacked into uh, and seated and strapped into or, into Atlantis. Um, weather was kind of not not so great. You know, we had this experienced commander who was on his third flight. Um, I had Leland Melvin sitting next to me in the MS-1 seat. Uh, we had Mike Form, the experienced guy, down on the mid deck with Bobby Satcher and, and Butch as our as our pilot, who was on his first flight as well. And so we're looking at the weather, and, and so you're always sitting there, going, "Okay, is the vehicle going to be good? Is the weather going to be good?" And so you can think of those kinds of things, um, but the uh, the the, we went to the nine minute hold you know the commander and the pilot can look out the windows going hey guys i'm not so sure this is gonna this is gonna work out and then sure enough you know kind of a hole in the weather you know was was moving our way and we came out of that nine minute hold and we were on our way and so it's really interesting you get your mind synced up and geared up and ready to go and then you don't want to be able to you know uh start thinking about well we might scrub because you, your mind needs to be ready to, to go but you also don't want to be so ready to go that you don't you know have the possibility of, of of scrubbing and and being able to execute those steps as well but i tell you with you know going through my mind was not i had no concerns about the safety of the vehicle or anything like that i mean when when you get around nasa people and you see how utterly dedicated they are to their jobs um, and making sure that, that we are safe and we can go up and execute our mission. I mean, it's it, it's an act of God, but I look at it as, hey, no one's shooting at me, so you know this is this is a better deal than I had, you know, flying F-18s uh, over Iraq. But my thoughts were, oh man, I, if we're going, then that means I'm gonna miss the birth of my daughter. Yeah. And uh, and so my wife, you know, was taking the same thing. She was over in Banana Creek, a couple miles away, with our son, and you know, nine months pregnant, and going, well. I see this candlelight, then that means he won't be here. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, it did. And so we launched uh, everything, you know, was a you know flawless launch, uh, which was, you know, we train, you know, so much of the time for malfunctions and to be ready for anything. It, it's amazing, it, eerie feeling when you actually go through a launch, and it is, you know, the way it's supposed to be. And everything's just happening on time, you kind of I would say almost bored, but it's just, it's strange to not have all those other things going on that you've been training so hard for, all the eventualities and, and outcomes that mission control throw at, can throw at you during your training. And uh, I mean, to be able to be in a vehicle that has seven and a half million pounds of thrust, but only weighs something like six million pounds at, at launch and then quickly loses weight as it burns all that fuel and then sheds the solid rocket motors is just, it, it, it Beyond comprehension, because you know, you've been in a, a maybe a fast car or a um, roller coaster ride that accelerates really quickly, and you kind of press back in the seat, and everybody goes wee Yeah. But but that acceleration, there's not a power behind it to keep the acceleration going, and so you get it for a few seconds at a time, you know, or the you know, the Corvette that you're able to you know, smash on the gas and get to zero to 100 on a racetrack, of course, um, you know, in in you know 10 seconds or something, but. This one, I mean, you accelerate slowly at first because you're heaviest. And as you burn that fluid, uh, the solid rocket motors and the actual uh, liquid hydrogen, liquid oxygen, the thing gets lighter. And so you're pushed back in your seat and the G's keep building and they build up to, you know, towards three G's, which is kind of our limit. Um, and it goes on for one minute, two minutes, you know, two and a half minutes, the solid rocket motors are gone. You've now burned a whole bunch of, you know, your your liquid fuel in, the, in that lane tank at the rate of like an Olympic swimming pool every second. Um, and you're still accelerating. I mean, when you get to six and seven minutes of this acceleration, your brain is just saying, I've been pressed back in my seat. How is it there's something that is that powerful? And then in eight and a half minutes, you've gone from zero to 17,500 miles an hour and you're at orbital velocity you're falling around the earth at the same rate that it curves so you have the sensation of zero gravity i mean it's just it's it's you wish everybody could do that cuz it's cool
0: yeah and w- what was it like the the moment where you're where then when you're there and you look back at earth and see really how small it is you know com- compared to everything
1: yeah, and, and for, you know, being, I was sitting in the uh, flight engineer seat, the MS-2 seat, in between the pilot and the commander, you know, responsible for you know, watching them and, you know, understanding all the systems. And so we're pretty busy during those eight and a half minutes.
0: Yeah.
1: So, but then at Mach 13, you actually roll from the inverted position that you are, are at for the first part of launch, and you roll upright so the antennas can look at the top to the satellites. And, but you're still, you know, inside, motors are going, you're monitoring all that. It was that main engine cutoff when now okay, clock's off, we've made it to orbital velocity, everything's safe. And you could I could look out the front window and now see the curvature of the earth. That's what was you know blew me away at first. I mean I'm still strapped into my seat, so I'm not feeling the zero gravity as much. But my whole life the horizon's flat. I mean for all of us it's flat. Yeah. And all of a sudden you see the curve and it's a pretty stark curve. And your brain immediately just extrapolates, oh, that curve, if it keeps going, means the the whole circle is, you know, just below my orbiter, you know, and your, your mind can tell how big that is. And then the other part that then takes that, you know, understanding of how small the, the Earth is, is that in 90 minutes, you've gone around the whole thing. Oh and you go an hour and a half i can barely get across houston here to the north side in an hour and a half you know with, with traffic you know let alone around the entire planet in 90 minutes and everything that's ever happened in human history just went underneath you in 90 minutes oh and God. every experience you've ever had every person you've ever known is just been underneath you in 90 minutes that's when you sit there and go wow and so i cannot imagine you know i've talked to the folks that have done it you know and it, the Apollo astronauts where they could sit there from lunar distances and put their thumb out and cover up the earth. That just takes that to a whole nother level. And so that's, what's going to be exciting about, you know, the future missions here, you know, in the next couple of years, where well, we're going to send humans, you know, beyond the earth orbit for the first time since 1972. And people are going to be able to see that again.
0: Oh my God. That's, that's amazing. And, uh, just circling back to the birth of your daughter, you were, you were able to eventually see her right. And your wife, um, I I read somewhere that you were able to have some sort of satellite link with, with her once she was born.
1: Yep. We uh NASA and in its infinite wisdom, you know, talked to the docs and said, Hey, is it possible that uh, Randy's supposed to be going on his first EVA? Um, we could deliver the daughter the, the, the day before and said, Okay, sure. And so we had three spacewalks on our flight to do construction and, and work on the space station. And so Mike's foreman Bobby Satchel went out on the first one. And I was the guy, the choreographer inside, we called the IV, you know, reading off the procedures and steps and everything. Well, that next day, you know, our daughter was supposed to be born. So they induced my wife, um, but she didn't come. And so the whole night, you know, before my first spacewalk, my wife was in labor. And so I wake up that morning, it was first spacewalk. I had one chance to check. She's still in labor. Holy smoke. So now, you know, the pinnacle of my, you know, aviation and you know astronaut career i'm going on my first spacewalk in my own personal spacecraft and my wife's in labor and so i have to get in the suit completely divorce that from my mind and you know concentrate and on the task and you know knowing that once i got started on that spacewalk you know um you know suit preparation you know there was nobody's going to say anything about it until i got back inside i you know you have to concentrate um and uh you know focus on the, on the task and so we go out during the spacewalk we come back in i'm in the airlock as we're repressurizing the airlock thinking okay well hopefully there'll be some good news when i get out and I get out of the suit take my helmet off hey what's going on she's still in labor holy smokes this is <laughs> not <laughs> I, she's working way harder than i was <laughs> uh, yeah and so you know we ended up going to sleep that night still my wife was in labor and then uh, in the middle of the night our, our daughter was born and i woke up the next day to uh, the news that she she had been born and everyone was was doing well and you know that was a a day off um, and so by that afternoon I got a chance to finally see pictures of my daughter and do a video conference with my wife and and daughter and hear her for the first time um, but then right after that video conference was finished I floated out of the Japanese uh, um, element floated down to the airlock and close the hatch, and Bobby Satcher and I depressurized from normal sea level pressure 14.7 to Mm 10.2, which allowed us to then sleep that night at 10.2 pressure to denitrogenate our bodies, so that when we went on the spacewalk the next day, um, we wouldn't have a chance of the bends. And so seeing my daughter a few hours later, you know, getting ready to go to sleep for uh, my second spacewalk, where I was the the spacewalk lead, um, and then go do that spacewalk. I mean, it's just amazing series of events you know you think you know doing a spacewalk would be the highlight of anyone's you know life and and career
0: yeah
1: but but right there next to it was the reminder that you know seeing your child for the first time it's better than anything we see from space and and so if, if folks never get a chance to get to space even though we're working on it to make it available to everybody um, there's something better down here on earth and and uh, and that certainly would be uh, you know senior child for the first time.
0: Yeah, man that's amazing. And I read somewhere that that wasn't the first time that that's happened where an astronaut's <laughs> daughter was
1: born. Yeah, actually uh, three times
0: three uh, okay the
1: v, <laughs> Wow the v the V box Austrian astronaut. Uh, That happened when he was flying on Soyuz. Mike and Renita Fink had their daughter born when he was on a long-duration space station mission. Um, And the neat thing is we have this association of uh, space explorers where we meet annually around the world and where all the space flyers from all the different countries get together and have a congress. Well, in Austria a few years ago, those three women were there together and took a picture. And so you've got, you know, 100 astronauts from all these countries and all that. But that was a much more exclusive club of three women that gave birth to uh, their children while their slacker husbands were out in space. (laughs) Man,
0: that's that's amazing. I would never have thought that. And I don't think anyone would have ever known that. Um, uh, That's crazy. Um, And you kind of mentioned it a little bit uh, earlier. Um, Do you think it will be possible for average folks to go up into space and, you know, book a flight up there and, and back kind of?
1: absolutely i mean just look at all the companies that are doing so whether it's the suborbital companies you know virgin galactic blue uh blue origin with their new shepherd or the orbital companies you know spacex boeing um you know uh sierra nevada uh axiom space is getting into the is um getting into the business i mean there's there's so many companies so much interest it's great and we i mean i hope that they are all wildly successful i mean that I, I, you know, you mentioned it, but I mean, I hope that buying a plane ticket to space is just as common as an airline ticket in, in my time, in my lifetime. You know, I think the cost of it is coming down so rapidly. And, and think of we have not one but two companies um, that are landing their first stage rockets and reusing yeah. them. I mean, that's the most expensive part. You know, it's like flying an airplane to, you know, from from Maine to, to Los Angeles and then throwing the airplane away. Yeah. Well, if you can reuse it, holy smokes, that's gonna make it a lot cheaper. And so I'm hopeful that you know by the time I'm a grandfather, that maybe I can go. All right, kids, uh, we got about fifty thousand dollars for our our week long vacation. Do you want to go to Disneyland? Do you want to go to the you know go to space? It's gonna cost the same. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Wow. That's that's amazing to even think about. Um, you know, even now in 2020, but uh, I guess it's not far off. What's your life like now? And what's next for you? Do you want to go back to space, or what's what projects do you have going on?
1: I'm like every astronaut. I love to go back to space. Even the former astronauts, you know, would love to go back to space. Uh-huh. Um, um, right now, I'm, I'm the, uh, we're, we're in the astronaut office. We have different uh, branches uh, or areas. We have a, an ISS operations branch that does the current operations and crew training. We have a spacewalk branch. We have a safety branch. We have a commercial crew that handles the the Crew Dragon and the, and the Boeing Starliner that are going to uh, the International Space Station. And we have what's called an exploration branch. And that covers the, the SLS rocket. That's gonna be the you know the biggest rocket and most powerful rocket ever built by humans. It's gonna carry the Orion capsule uh, and spacecraft off of Earth and into, into deep space. It also includes the gateway, which is gonna be a space station orbiting around the moon. Um, and then also the lunar landers of which just in April, we selected three companies to do the initial work to be able to make landers. All of those pieces, you know, from the, the rocket to get the Orion uh, up into space with the four crew members that'll go to the lander and, and then on later missions to the gateway. Um, all those pieces are you know, meant to be able to get us to where we put the first woman, and the next man on the moon in 2024. And so as a test pilot, that's I mean. I am doing dream work right now. I mean, we we're, we're figuring out what the design is, what the requirements are. How do we test it? How do we you know, get humans in the loop? You know, what you know, what controls do we use? How do we make the uh, you know the control systems work? How does it fly? Those are all things that we're working on to be able to make that 2024 goal. And so next year we're going to fly an SLS rocket and Orion capsule on a mission called Artemis One. It's going to be uncrewed, and it's going to launch the uncrewed capsule around the moon. And we're going to be able to get the thing going fast enough to get around the moon, and therefore have it at the lunar return velocities to check out the heat shield coming back into Earth's atmosphere, because we're going to be coming back, you know, about I don't know, five, six thousand miles per hour faster than we did uh, than we do coming back from low Earth orbit. Huh. So, when we, so when we prove that that heat shield works, then in in the uh, spring of 2023, we're going to launch Artemis two. Which is going to be the first time we're going to have crew on board Orion on board that SLS rocket, and it is going to be a like a combination of Apollo Seven and Apollo Eight all together. Where it's going to be the first flight of Orion, but it's also going to be the, we're also going to be able to launch it on a free return trajectory around the Moon, and that'll be the first time that humans will have left low Earth orbit since Gene Cernan, Jack Schmidt, you know, did on Apollo Seventeen.
0: Yeah, wow,
1: Seventy Two, and then. You know, Shortly after that, in the in the fall of 2024, is when we're targeting to have Artemis III, which will now take the, the SLS rocket and the Orion, which had just done its flight test, and it'll go to uh, rendezvous in lunar orbit with a lunar lander, of which you know, three companies are, are competing right now. And then later this year, we'll down-select one or two of those companies to build that 2024 lander, and actually we'll take two of those four crew members down to the lunar surface um, for the first time since… Apollo 17.
0: Wow, that's amazing. So that
1: very exciting times. I mean, it. it we, we've got, you know, the Boeing, I'm sorry, the SpaceX uh, Crew Dragon that just got is on orbit right now. That's, mm-hmm. you know, the first U.S. vehicle to fly off Kennedy Space Center since you know 2009. The Boeing Starliner's, you know, looking to fly next year with crew. And they'll have Orion flying with crew in 2023. And they'll have a human-rated lunar lander in 2024. I mean, four human-rated dynamic space vehicles when, you know, we haven't had more than the, more than one uh, since 1972.
0: Yeah, so the next four years or so are really going to be uh, exciting for space exploration.
1: Yep, and 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 hopefully that you know gets the the young people, the kids, the folks in college, the high school kids excited about you know wanting to be part of it, and whether that is as a you know as an astronaut, which is you know very small part of the space program, or it's as a flight controller, or as an engineer, or as a you know someone who actually you know designs the rockets or figures out how to make the the liquid propellant uh, or rocket systems more efficient or it's the the space you know physiologist or the the flight doctor um i mean there's just so many opportunities for all these myriad of fields yeah and think about once we you know are able to sustain the presence on the moon and test out all our equipment that's what's going to allow us to get to mars in the 2030s and who knows what capabilities we'll need as you know uh for those long duration missions where it's going to take eight to nine months to get to Mars where you spend a year or more there and another eight to nine months to get back. Are we going to need a, you know, space psychologist astronaut, or we're going to need a botanist or, you know, the, the Mark Watley, you know, type of Martian uh, crew member that can, you know, take and grow plants and food and things like that. I mean, are we going to want to have an artist along, you know, someone with a, you know, the, where their brain goes to more, more the artistic side and, and uh, be able to, you know, document the journey and and how the humans, you know, go from seeing a planet that you can put behind your thumb when we're at the moon distances to where you look out the window of your spacecraft and you're just, the earth looks like a star. Yeah. And you have no heavenly body reference until you get close to Mars. I mean, that's going to be another awesome mind boggling experience that'll, you know, allow us to expand our our presence further in the solar system as we learn to deal with that.
0: Wow. That's, that's amazing. And uh, I'll, I'll be watching and following along. I find this all really exciting. And, uh, and thank you for taking some time to do this out of your busy schedule, I'm sure. And
1: Oh, my pleasure, Larry. The, you know, I am a very, very tiny part of the space program, just the highly, you know, a highly visible part of it. Yeah. But, you know, unlike other people you, you might've interviewed, I, I didn't, you know, get here because I invented something or or did something by myself. I mean, it was purely that, you know, I, I was selected out of a, you an know, amazing group of talented people. And then, you know, tens of thousands of people did their work every day in our space program, whether it's in our companies, yeah. you know, uh, and our contractors, or whether it's the folks at NASA. And they're the ones that, allowed me to be able to go do my part. It's just my part, you know, happened to be in space. And so I'm just, you know, thankful every day and it's, your taxpayer dollars hard at work. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'm a I'm, I'm product of the support of the American people and our desire to go explore. And so it's a great time. We're, we're doing amazing work, even in the midst of, of what's going on right now, we're, we're still, you know, working harder from home. It seems like during the, uh, um, you know, the current virus restrictions than we were when we were, um you know at work every day and so it's still going far and 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 we're still making progress um so that we get on the backside of this we are you know uh, ready to go and continue the next steps yeah
0: well cool thank you so much and and thank you very much for your service too to the country not only you know with with everything you've done in space but also with your military career so thank you very much
1: oh thank you for the support
0: that was randy bresnik nasa astronaut to follow Randy, you can like him on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, at AstroComrade. You can learn more about NASA by visiting their website at nasa.gov. Download and follow the My Famed Explained podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please go to Apple Podcasts, rate us, and leave us a review. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just search My Fame Explained. Have an idea for a future show or want to sponsor the show? You can email us at myfamexplained at gmail.com. Until next time, I'm Larry Gilbert, and this is the My Famed Explained podcast at myfameexplained.com.